man, Noel, Noel, born as the king of Israel. And we get to come to church on Christmas morning. That is a fantastic time of year, isn't it? Amen? It's good to be with you. Are you there? All right. Smiles, you know, uh, Christmas season. I know you had to fight traffic on Ward's Road, but Christmas season, smiles, joy in your heart. The king is born. He will inhabit and dwell with men. And what a great time of year that is. If you are, have a little one up through grade four and you're new with us and you see the kids leaving, that's your cue. You can take them down through grade four, meet your teacher in the foyer, and you can pick them up after we're all done. For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting a new section, as our habit, we'll take some time to introduce that section, and I think that it'll be enriching to you. I've not said it in a while, so I will say that at Berean, we believe God's people are best served by God's word, which means that we take that word, word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and we study it, and we work our way through it, and we examine it, and we break it down, and we get the sense of it, and we cross-reference, which maybe many of you are new, you wonder, wow, he hits a lot of other passages, we do that intentionally because we want to make sure that we're accurately handling the Word of God, which 2 Timothy 2.15 instructs us to do. That just means cutting a straight cut. And the idea of it is, is that when you study a certain passage and then you cross-reference, if it means what you say it means in the passage that you're studying and it means what you said it means in the other passages, then when you put that all back together, it all fits back together as it should. So that's why we do that. And as we study it, we answer some questions. What does the Word of God say? What does it mean by what it says, and how does that apply to me? And that is the way that you can approach your study of God's Word, just verse by verse through, and I encourage you to take the trifold that's in, uh, on the welcome table in the foyer and begin reading every single day as the Lord really has in inclined you to do, and your desire in your, in your heart of hearts really is to do that. Uh, make that a reality for yourself this year, and the richness of that time will be yours. The, the growth in your walk with the Lord will be yours. The understanding of the Holy Standard and the blessings that he has set before you will be yours. And so that is all richness that the Lord intended for you as you walk this life to give you the strength and the instruction and the uh, motivation that you need to walk as you should. So that's all found in the word, and we are going to study it today. If you're new, uh, we've been doing that very thing through the book of 1 Corinthians. After beginning the letter uh, in chapter 1, really describing to the church, Paul does in Corinth, the benefits they have, by virtue of being redeemed. So all the benefits of being a saint, he moves immediately and begins to address issues in the church that inhibit the health of the church. And really from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 16, verse 9, Paul addresses these issues. And some of them were pretty bad. For example, in the first section from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 4, verse 2, unity was his topic. And so he had to deal with errors regarding division and gossip and strife and backbiting and all the things that feed disunity. And so Paul took that to task with the church uh, to give them some instruction on how best to manage those things. And then we got to chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to the end of that chapter, Paul's topic was purity. And so he dealt with errors regarding immorality inside church membership and what to do then with church members who are unrepentant morally. And so they, immorality is in their life, they're unrepentant, what to do with that situation. And then from chapter 6, verse 1 through verse 11, Paul wanted to deal with testimony, and so he had to deal with errors regarding conflict resolution and taking believer, other believers to court and all the things that should be done instead of that. And then from chapter 6, verse 12 to the end of chapter 7, we saw Paul deal with the body and with singleness and marriage 
and errors in the church regarding immorality and marriage and divorce. And so we went through with those things, very relevant things, all of those, as you know, uh, both uh, prophylactically or curative, either way, whichever happens to be applied. And so then starting at chapter 8, all the way through chapter 11, verse 1, we saw Paul deal with freedom in Christ, and then the errors that popped up inside your freedom in Christ, kind of just thinking about yourself, and it all only matters what I think about what I do, and all those kinds of things that Paul put an end to as he dealt with Christian liberty. And then we got to chapter 11, and Paul began to deal with actual conduct in the church meeting. And so from chapter 11, verse 2, really until the end of chapter 11, Paul dealt with communion, and he dealt with the errors that were happening in the communion and the love feast that had preceded communion, and how to, how to handle those kinds of things, and what was actually going on, and what should be going on, and then the, the discipline that the Lord would bring if they didn't change that. It's very instructive for the church. And then really beginning in chapter 12, all the way through chapter 14, then he dealt with spiritual giftedness, and we've just closed this chapter out. He dealt with spiritual giftedness, and with love as the foundation of all that goes on in the church. And then uh, he addressed the misuse of tongues and errors regarding spiritual gifts, and then he laid out the priorities of the Holy Spirit on what is and what is not to happen when they meet together. And when we looked at all of that, and, uh, and we looked at all the meanings of that, and, and Paul said, all that Paul said, and then the application to the modern church as the modern church continues to deal with these issues. And so we, we made some application there and took our time with that passage. And today, we're going to begin chapter 15. And here, uh, Paul is carried along to help the church to see the impact of the resurrection of Christ as the substance of faith. And so he must deal with errors regarding the resurrection and the resurrection and glorification of the believer. And the passage really contains wonderfully specific details regarding the reality of Jesus' resurrection and that impact on our hope and on death and on our witness and on our resurrection and our glorification and our ultimate triumph. And so we're going to take our time with this, as you might imagine, and I know you'll be greatly encouraged as we go through this passage together. Now, so that you know where we're going, then we're going to move to chapter 16, and he desires the church to be generous with material things, and so he's going to confront errors regarding money, in which he's going to pick up again in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and so we'll be looking at that two different times uh, over a course of months. So God desires purity for the church. He desires uh, it to be pure in doctrine and, and in thought and in conduct, and so he brings Paul along to address that. And just to catch you up, uh, last week Jim brought a very thought-provoking message concerning transformation that's occurring in the life of the believer. Really, uh, what stuck into my mind in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week, we, we took some time during Christmas uh, or Thanksgiving break, and Jim brought us a wonderful message. And then the last time together, which was two weeks before that, we peeked into a service, really, 2,000 years ago. I really like that section of chapter 14 because really what we're doing is we're getting an opportunity that I've always wanted to have happen anyway is just for the Holy Spirit to just stop the, the worship at any given point and just make commentary. Now maybe you don't want that. I, I know that makes me feel uncomfortable, but also I would really desire that more than anything. Perhaps during the music, musical service, perhaps during the scripture reading, maybe during uh, the teaching time, maybe during the offering time. Uh, whatever it was, whatever point in time during the worship that he would put it on pause and make some comments, even if it's only to our own heart, to let us know what's actually going on, what the Holy Spirit senses from us and understands to be true about us, and then give us some correction. Well, we got that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, right at the end of that passage. We, we had the Lord peek in, and we were able to hear the Holy Spirit's commentary on that service about what was actually going on, what was happening during the service, and all that that contains. We won't go back through it, just a real small section I want to remind you of. But Paul ended that last section 
with a very significant command after the extensive instruction he gave them on love and spiritual gifting and the order and conduct that is supposed to go on in the church. He said this in verse 40. Look at chapter 14, verse 40. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And that was really great to kind of sum up all of that because the churches, all churches, they're, they're, they vary and the texture of the churches vary, but there's some things that are given by the Holy Spirit that can't vary. And we had a bunch of those things given to us uh, earlier before uh, verse 40. And then he just says, all things must be done. Present, middle, imperative. Present tense, this is the continuing reality. This is properly, orderly. The middle voice means they have to initiate that action. So the command is given for them to participate in that action and the imperative mood is this. There's no contingency on this. It's not subjunctive. This is a command from Paul. You're to do this. You're to take this action to make sure all things are done, what? Properly. Yuske manus. Gracefully. Becomingly. It's only used three times in the New Testament. It's always used to help the Christian avoid a bad testimony. In other words, it's this way. Nothing should be done in a service that would appear to be, catch this, at any service, at any time, unseemingly, inappropriate, rude. Because love doesn't act that way, number one, and we saw that in chapter 13, didn't we? And number two, because Paul just got through saying it has to be done properly, which would exclude all of those unseemingly, inappropriate, rude, whatever. Because that's what was going on in the Corinthian church. Quite frankly, that's what goes on sometimes in a lot of modern-day churches, sometimes around business meetings, but other times as well. Nothing's to be done that way. And so Paul says all things are to be un uh, properly and all things are to be unorderly, kata taxis, literally translated, that's down from order, and just has to do with arranging things in a certain way. It's not wrong to sit down and figure out how you want the order of service to go. And on the other side, it's not okay to just say, well, let's just let the Holy Spirit do whatever he wants to do. There's this wonderful dynamic that goes on as we prepare for a service and prepare our hearts in advance in prayer the Holy, we agree the Holy Spirit has the right to work in us however he wishes to do it. And if we prepare and we plan and I study and you study and we get ready and things go a little bit different than, differently than that, and we're okay with that. But we don't just say, okay, whatever happens, because things are supposed to be done down from order. So it just has to do with arranging things in a certain way. It's a word that refers to a fixed succession, observing a fixed time following another time. And, and that follows because, number one, love doesn't act unseemingly. It doesn't, it's not rude. It doesn't interrupt. And two, it just works perfectly with all things that are to be done in order. And that's how that works. And so then, of course, contradicting the idea that we could just randomly do whatever we want and that, would, uh, and that we can do or say whatever we want in the service, which Paul has already addressed over and over. And that notion, of course, I think springs out of our experience with democracy and freedom and freedom of speech which Paul has demonstrated has no good footing inside the New Testament church. So the chapter closes with a very notable principle, and it, I think it just flows out then as we go through the next, this letter and the next letter, we keep that in mind. Paul, the Holy Spirit has set up the things that can be done, the things that can't be done, and then says all things done decently or properly and orderly just kind of covers everything else that may occur or you may think should occur or whatever, and you have to kind of bring it up under that, that command. Public worship is very important, obviously from Paul, as he spent really from chapter 11 all the way through the end of chapter 14 speaking directly about public worship. Everything has to be done as seemingly a manner as possible. And this is, you know, Jesus really just stepping in and commenting on an actual service, and we get to learn from that. And as we saw last time, we, we, we will 
approach these worship things then with the right heart attitude, as we kind of prefaced everything we said last time we were together, if we've presented our bodies as a living sacrifice to begin with. So the worship occurs well before you get here by presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then when you come in here corporately, then those things the Holy Spirit has set up then in 1 Corinthians 14 become the structure about which we do our worship. Now, as we look at Paul's next topic, it really centers on the resurrection, 58 verses. And, and every section is just packed full of wonder and encouragement and motivation and security. And just so you can track where we're going to go as we think about the resurrection, really, we're going to think about a resurrection reality, which is, that's the good news, the tomb is empty. That's really verses 1 through 11. And then we're going to look at resurrection hope, that's of deliverance from our sins. And that's really verse 12 through 20. And then we're going to see resurrection authority, and that's authority over death and those things that were brought in because of the sin. That's verses 21 through 28. And then we're going to be resur- look at resurrection motivation, and that's to live and witness and endure. You know, if Christ rose, these are the things that we're motivated to do. And then resurrection transformation follows after that. That's, that's our fleshly bodies are going to be transformed. That's verses 35 through 49. And then finally, resurrection triumph. Probably a passage you've heard a lot at funerals, but it, it just is such a marvelous thing as it works its way in the context of this passage. Resurrection triumph, that's our final victory. This is verses 50 through 58. So that's how we're going to track through so you can tell how we're moving and whether we're moving fast enough as you see us go from one to the other. So let's, let's read this chapter, which is our habit. I know it's 58 verses, but this, it's a marvelous time together, and a public reading of the Word is something the Lord's commanded us to do. So look at your copy of God's Word. You can find one right in the seat in front of you. I'm going to be reading from New Amer- the New American Standard. That's the Lockman edition. That's the 95 edition. A little bit different from the previous one. And that's what you'll find in, in the seats in front of you. So just look there if you would and follow along. I'll give you some verse cues if you don't have this version so we can stay together. Paul says this, verse 1. Now... I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, verse 2, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, verse 4, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Verse 8. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me, verse uh, 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, verse 15, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. 
Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Verse 21. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all would be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Verse 24, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom of, of the God and Father whom he has abolished all rule, whom he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Verse 29, otherwise, what will those who are baptized for the dead? What will we... Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you that I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Verse 34, become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Verse 38, but God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds of a body of its own. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another of flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars different from star in glory. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Verse 5, 45, so also it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Verse 47, the man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, so we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. Verse 53, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal man must put on immortality. Verse 54, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Verse 57, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. As we consider all the talk today about the gospel, what it is, how it's presented, Paul's opening comment here, again, I think we find just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. I'd like you to look at verse 1. Would you do that? Paul says this. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, to which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let's look at some of those, those phrases and, and uh, let's comment on them a little bit as we get started here. Paul says this, I make known to you, brethren, Now, it's important that we look at this in in the way that Paul's expressed it. Paul was their pastor for 18 months. We understand that. So Paul went through a lot of things, and we know Paul liked to preach lengthy sermons, as we saw in Acts. So he took some time with the teaching. But Paul says this. It's present active indicative. In other words, here's the thing. Paul isn't reminding them here. the, The phrase is not reminding them of the gospel. He's saying, I am currently telling you what it is. And so there's a reproof here right at the very beginning. It appears that some of the Corinthians were evidently far from knowing and understanding and appreciating the gospel, even though they were born again. That's not an unusual circumstance, is it? That's very very common in the modern church, I think, too. It wasn't because they'd never heard it before, because Paul says this. Look at the next part. It says, which I preached to you. So I'm making known to you the gospel. So I'm telling you what it is. But I preach this to you, that's aorist active indicative. So in other words, the aorist is, at a point in the past, Paul made the good news clear to the Corinthian church. So they'd heard it before, but they obviously didn't know it. And he says, which also you received. Again, aorist active indicative. So at a point in the past, they had accepted the teaching. They hadn't rejected the message of the gospel. Uh, They clearly, at a point in time in the past, recognized it as important, even if they didn't understand it fully. And then Paul goes on further and he says this, in which you also stand. That word is perfect, active, indicative. And it's sometimes translated abide, uh, like we see in 1 John 4, 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So a very common word we see in the New Testament. So the Corinthian believers, on having received the gospel Paul preached, are able, here it is, to experience a reality of being permanently established. The gospel did that for them. And then it says this, verse 2, first phrase of verse 2 says this. By which you also are saved. And this verb is present passive indicative. So here's the thing. 
Passive voice means that the subject is being acted on by an outside force. So the gospel that Paul is explaining to them, he had explained to them before, and when he did it, they had accepted the teaching. And the gospel created the reality where a believer, where they, if you will, were fixed in place, permanently established, a firm foundation. Okay, so the gospel accomplished that in their lives. It was also, though, and this is important as Paul makes this distinction, it was also the vehicle or the means of conveyance that God used to bring about the salvation of the individual. So Paul speaking to born-again people who had obviously lost the passion for the gospel or even the ability to appreciate it and communicate it. And that's relevant, isn't it? And that's right. I think that's right where the church is today. This is very important. And I think it's important that we make some cross-references here to just to see just how important it is. I'd like you to turn, just hold your finger here, we'll be back, but turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Will you do that? Is this, is, if this is the case in the Corinthian church, and it certainly is the case, if we just look at all the writing that's going on today about some of the emerging church and all that's going on with the presentation of what is commonly recognized as the gospel, and I put it in quotation marks, but isn't the gospel, I think it's important that we take a look at exactly what Paul's talking about. So, it's powerful. He says, I gave this of primary importance to you. So, faith comes, it says this, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing. In other words, this is a derivative nature of the gospel. The gospel is the vehicle through which the Holy Spirit goes to work. It's not something wise men have thought up. It's not something achieved by intuition, by meditation, by mysticism, or speculation, or philosophizing, or whatever. Faith comes by hearing a message. The message has to be given. It's an essential element in evangelism. The truth has to be communicated. The facts, then, have to be clear. That's what Paul did when he explained belief and confession in Romans 10, 9, and 10. We'll look at that in just a second. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. There's an essential set of facts that have to be presented for the gospel to go to work in the heart of people. And I think that's Paul's whole point here. If someone is saved... If someone calls on the name of the Lord, to use another reference, if someone believes and confesses, it will be as a result of hearing the clear message of the gospel. And Paul just got through talking about what it did to the Corinthian church as he brought that gospel to them. Now let's look at that last half of that verse. So, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So again, salvation doesn't come as a result of a message a man has thought up. And I think it's possible that this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. He's actively giving them the gospel because even though he had preached it to them previously, even though they had received it when it was given to them, they didn't reject it, even though they had found in it a place to be firmly fixed, they didn't have it right when they were giving it out and they were not evaluating and valuing it correctly. So, according to Romans 10, 17 and the passage we just read in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, how do you get saved? By faith. How do you understand how to do it? By hearing the message of the word of Christ. I mean, that's simple words, right? We just got through reading them. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. What's the content of the message? Well, the significance of Christ, the word about Christ, the knowledge of Christ. Or, as Paul said, as I pre presented to you of most importance, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the thing. And what is that? Well, Paul tells it in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance 
what I also received. This is how they became to receive it and to be fixed and to be saved. He gave this message to them. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So salvation then can come to those who hear the word about Christ and respond in faith or to say it like it says in Romans 10, 9, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. So the gospel comes and it acts on an individual and it creates a substance of confession. There's a specific information then that's conveyed by the gospel that Paul preached that has to be confessed. Verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Now confess is homologeo, that's a compound word, it's a great word, we've looked at it before. The first word is the adverb homo, that's together. And then the second word is logos, that's word or speech. And so the idea is taken together then, it's aorist, active, subjunctive. So there's a condition involved, isn't it? That's why they said, if you confess. So if you then say together to say the same thing, that's the idea there. If you say the same thing or to agree. So there's an express set of facts that must be confessed. The word is used of making a legal confession. So we see that a lot in, in the New Testament time period. Acts 24, 14 uh, gives us that. It's a public declaration. So if you confess, what? Jesus is Lord, you see. There's, or believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. There's a certain set of facts that have to be said together with, or what the Lord has said, or what Jesus has said, or what the scriptures say. We're going to see that in just a minute. So it's aorist, active, subjunctive. So the condition is what? If you confess the set of facts that are true, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. So that's very important. Paul says, listen, I brought to you of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There's the facts of the gospel. And that is the, that is the vehicle by which the Holy Spirit begins to go to work in the heart of people. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, you see kind of the same idea. It says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. So in particular here, Paul points out the word of faith, which has been preached, includes a verbal agreeing with the facts of Jesus' rightful position. Okay, therefore, anyone who confesses me before men, so you've confessed that thing, that set of facts that are true, my, I will also confess before my Father who's in heaven. Simply, here in verse 10, if your mouth says the same thing, it results in salvation. The same thing that the Lord has said, the same thing Jesus has said, the same thing the scriptures say. So what does your mouth have to say? Well, verse 9 says what? Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Well, the demons do that, right? No, they don't. They understand uh, who Jesus is. Matthew 8, 29, Jesus is in the uh, country of the Gerardines. He's casting out demons. It's not, it's not the same as just a head knowledge that I, I know that Jesus existed and he lived in, in, uh, in, you know, in Israel and he did his ministry work and he, he died on a cross and he rose again. So it's not the same as saying the facts, okay? Because the demons can say the facts and they know them better than we do because they've been around. And there's no shadowing of it, and there's no, you know, funny philosophizing of it or whatever and trying to change it. They know exactly what occurred, okay? So the demons, Jesus confronts them. Demons, demons cried out saying this, what business do we have with each other? Here's the title, son of God. Is there any question about who, who Jesus is to the demons? No, they know exactly who he is. Why are you messing with us at this point, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
They even understand eschatology. They know what's going to happen because they can read the Bible. They understand what's going to happen in the future. So they call him son of God. It's not the same as that, is it? It's got to be different than just saying the words. Will they willingly confess Jesus as Lord? No. They know that he is deity, right? He's the son of God. They know who he is, but they won't acknowledge him as Lord. See, did, did national Israel acknowledge him as Lord? No. They knew who Jesus was. They knew his lineage, see, but they wouldn't confess him as Lord. They wouldn't acknowledge him as deity. They certainly acknowledge him as their savior. Jesus was an irritant, a stumbling block to the Jews. So true saving faith is believing and confessing Jesus as Lord. It's not just Lord meaning deity because the demons, uh, the Gadarenes already said that, okay? That's demon faith, James 2, 19. We'll talk about that next week. Recognize as deity. So confessing then has to be more than just knowledge of the facts. Confessing or saying the same thing is to say everything that Jesus said, right? That Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior, see? That um, Jesus is the sinless one, that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb that all other sacrifices pointed to, that Jesus was the conqueror of death. Jesus is the soon-coming king. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus has fulfilled the promises of God to men, see? Jesus has the right to judge and will judge that there's a judgment coming which should be feared, that man should repent. All these things are at work, see, in the heart of one who confesses Jesus as Lord. That man needs to be forgiven and justified, that we can be born into a living hope, that there is a home in heaven, that, that because Jesus lives, those who believe will live also. And I just kind of skimmed over the surface of all the things Jesus talked about about himself, see? It's a confessing those things to be true, see? And it's confessing that Jesus has, because of those things are true, complete authority over you. See, that's the essence, see? The gospel goes to work as a vehicle, and the Holy Spirit makes, uh, brings people along to help them confess these kinds of things, see? Jesus has complete authority over us. That's how we come to that understanding, as we read what Jesus said about himself. And the thing, that's the thing the rich young ruler from Mark 10, 17 wouldn't do, see? Think about this. So here's the rich young ruler. You know, Jesus is, is setting out on a journey. Uh, a guy runs up to him and he kneels down. <clears throat> so he's right there on his knees in front of Jesus. So he's in the right position. And he kneels before him and, and he asks him, you know, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he wants to have eternal life. Um, he's unsure uh, of what he's supposed to do. He's, he's afraid of the consequences of not having things right. Okay, obviously these things are all true, right? He goes, he kneels before Jesus. What shall I do to have eternal life? I mean, he wants to know. And, you know, there's some consequences of not getting that right. And so he obviously had those at play in his heart. And then Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Look at him, Jesus felt love for him and said to him, you know, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So he gives him a command that he have some control over, okay? Jesus didn't, didn't dispute that he said, you know, I've kept all these commandments from my youth and all that stuff. And even if he kept all the commandments, is it possible for him to be saved by keeping all the commandments? No, because if you fail in one area, you failed in them all, right? And so it's not possible for that. To, Jesus didn't contest it. He just says, okay, let's just see where you are spiritually. Go sell everything you have, 
and follow me. You've got control over this. You can do it right now. Where are you? Okay, you're on your knees right in front of me. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And now, here's another question. Would he have been saved by giving all of his money away? No, right? Otherwise, generous people would be saved automatically, and they're not. So that even wasn't the issue, is it? Okay, here's the thing. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. So here's the thing. You want to have eternal life? You think you're righteous according to the law? You recognize I'm a teacher? You suspect I will have the right answer for you? You could confess the Shema. You would do all those kinds of things. You understand all those things, the order of the worship and all that. You have all the knowledge. Let's try one more thing. Let's see who's in charge of your life. Do what I say and come and follow me. And this would be just one step of many steps I'm going to require you to take, right? In sanctification, you're going to be put to death all kinds of deeds of the flesh, not just that one, okay? What, would he do it? No. That was the issue, wasn't it? I mean, he, he said who Jesus was, but he didn't really confess it, right? It wasn't really true because Jesus wasn't in charge. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do what Jesus asked him to do. You have to confess Jesus is Lord, see? Romans 10.10 says, with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Confesses is saying the same thing as another. So who are we saying the same thing as? Or if you will, who are we saying it with? Well, what does God say about Jesus? Well, let's look at some of those things. You can jot some of these things down if it's helpful for you. What does God say about Jesus? Well, Matthew 17, 5. If you're going to say the same thing as, then you have to say the same thing as what God says. What does God say? Well, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. This is when he went uh, on the mount, and then there was a transfiguration, and, and uh, he, he was glorified temporarily there before them. And, uh, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Okay, here's what God says. Hear what he says. He's my son. He's in charge. What he says is true. What does God, what does God say about Jesus? John 17, 1. How about this one? Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Verse 2, even as you give, give him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So what's God say about him? Well, you know, Jesus just repeats what God has said about him and what God has given to him, which is what? Authority over all flesh. Eternal life is defined here as knowing God and knowing Jesus. And what do you think we need to know that's the word gnosko, to mean understanding or comprehend about them. Well, the fullness of their nature and of their power and of their attributes. Some of the things we just got through saying in that list, see. He gave him authority over all flesh. Confessing Jesus is Lord is to confess that he has authority over all flesh, right? Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, verse 11, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, there'll come a time in the future where confessing Jesus is Lord isn't going to make any difference because it's already past the time of decision making. It's just a matter of establishing the truth of the universe, which is what? That Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So someday in the future, the truth will be established over all flesh and everybody will say it. But right now, in the time of decision, in the time of salvation, in the age of grace, there's an opportunity for people to confess Jesus as Lord and be saved. But someday, it's just going to be the established fact. Everybody confesses Jesus as Lord. Why? Because he is. But to get saved, you have to come to that knowledge before the judgment. So God made Jesus' name above every other name, 
with the express purpose that every tongue will confess the truth. And what's the truth? That Jesus Christ is over everybody, if you just want to make it simple. And we said a few weeks ago, when you reiterate the word of God, you make sure that everyone has the opportunity to confess this very thing. Remember when we talked about that? As you reiterate the word of God, somebody comes in who isn't familiar with the church, but he hears you confessing Jesus as Lord and making clear God's position, he's able to come to that conclusion as well. But of course, if you're just coming into the church and the pastor's just talking about his vacation and then a bunch of cool videos and making some edgy statements and making sure you feel good on your way out, it's impossible for people to come to that conclusion, see? Because that isn't the gospel. But when you give the gospel, you're able to come to that conclusion as the Holy Spirit goes to work in your heart. So, who else then are we to say the same thing as, if you will? Who else are we to say it with? Well, how about a couple more about what Jesus said about himself? If you're going to confess it, then Jesus says, and he came up and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Exousia. All earth is under my jurisdiction. That's the way to understand that. The power and the right of rule. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. He called the twelve together. He gave them power. He gave them authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Now, it's just implied there, isn't it? Okay? How could he give all that stuff to these first century apostles? Well, because it all belongs to him. It's impossible to give away what isn't yours to give away, okay? So he's able to give those things away. Why? Because it all belongs to him. And so you have to say, you know, you have to confess then what Jesus says about himself, that all authority belongs to him. That changes the gospel, doesn't it? When you present the gospel in the way that Paul started it in 1 Corinthians 15, you've changed the presentation from what we typically hear, which is, wouldn't you like to be loved, and wouldn't you like to be secure, and wouldn't you like to have a home in heaven, and all these wonderful benefits of salvation, but we haven't said what you have to understand to be true and submit to. And that's where the gospel changes people, see? Because we can conform ourselves on the outside to whatever. And you may come to church because your spouse does or because your parents do or whatever. But if you haven't confessed Jesus as Lord, you don't understand those kinds of things. And you haven't made that clear that that's how you feel, that's your position. Then you're not born again, see. And there's no way for the gospel to fix you in that permanent place. Because you haven't submitted to what the Lord says you have to submit to. That's the only way that things can change people, see. The gospel can change people as if it's the true gospel. Now, what does the scripture say about Jesus? We've got to move on because we're going to run out of time and we won't get to the end of this. Well, we'll see a few, a few weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. The scripture says, Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of God, uh, kingdom to, the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. And that all rule, all authority and all power is the temporary rule and authority and power that belong to the kingdoms of the world. See? Kingdoms of the world have temporary rule. And I like, I like uh, C.S. Lewis when he says all names will be correctly assigned in the future. Right now we have names that are incorrectly assigned and people exalt themselves to some certain position and kings evaluate their, their own reign in a certain way and whatever. But someday all those things will be all reassigned and the correct uh, assignment for who is truly king and who has real authority will be given. And that's what we're looking at. See, we're looking at a future. We have a temporary rule, a temporary authority, and they belong to the kingdoms of men. And he can only abolish the temporary rule and the temporary authority and the temporary power if he has what? Sovereign rule and sovereign authority and sovereign power to do it. And of course he does. How about Ephesians 1.19? Got to say the same thing as the scripture says. If you want to be saved, 
The gospel's got to have power. How, what's the power? Well, confessing that Jesus is Lord. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Uh, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Verse 20, which he brought about in Christ, and then he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things the church. So we have to confess what God says. We have to confess what Jesus says about himself. We have to confess what the scriptures say. We have to say the same thing as that. See, that's the idea. The Father affirms over and over that Jesus is Lord. Jesus affirms over and over that he has all authority. The scriptures affirm over and over that Jesus has all authority and dominion and all power. See? Romans 14, 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be, both, they might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And Jesus went to the cross so that he might have this authority. Colossians 2, 10. And in him you've been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and all authority. Jude 25. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, so way back, and now and forever. Okay, so you get in the long line of history in the future and the past, from before all time, now, and all the way into the future. Glory, majesty, dominion, authority. That's confessing Jesus as Lord. Do you believe that in your own heart? Before all time he had authority. Now he has authority. And forever he will have authority because God has given him all authority. And then add this wonderful mix, uh, verse into the mix. Verse 20 12, 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You present the gospel, the Holy Spirit goes to work in the heart of the believer, the heart of the, of the one who's coming, and helps him understand that and confesses that. We have to say the same thing that God says about Jesus. We have to say the same thing that Jesus says about himself. We have to say the same thing that the scriptures say about Jesus. But we can't do any of that, see, unless the Holy Spirit's at work. And the opportunity to do that, according to Paul, comes through the gospel. Jesus goes to visit his disciples in, in uh, John chapter 20, verse 26. And he says this, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them, and Jesus came, uh, came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst. So he's coming and appearing to them. Peace be with you, he says, verse 27. And he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, what? What do you say? My Lord and my God. What did he confess? Did you understand it at that point? Believing is confessing. You know, Lord has to do with authority. God has to do with deity. And here Thomas, confession, our Lord recognized that he believed. Because it was all based on Jesus' resurrection. Came up from the grave. The power there allowed him to have that authority. God has given to him. And so Thomas was able to believe. And, and the specific information that must be believed is listed for us as well. And believe in your heart, what? You've got to confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and there's some substance there in the belief. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. So verse 9, you have to believe from your heart, from the inner person, from as deep as you can go in your personality, from the real you, the core of your existence. What do you have to believe? That God raised him from the dead. 
why did the Holy Spirit lead Paul along to really isolate this? Well, I think it's this. The physical bodily resurrection from the dead demonstrates that Jesus was who he said he was and did all that he said he came to do. It gave credence to everything he said. It affirmed everything he came to do. He, he fulfilled all God's purposes for his life. So this was the authentication and the verification of the ministry of Jesus. And that's why it's isolated here. And the scriptures tell us uh, this so clearly. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that the resurrection from the dead is the way that God declared that Jesus was God's son. Divine power, divine endorsement put on display for everybody to see. Jesus accomplished the work and God publicly exalted Jesus' position and his own power by raising him from the dead. See? That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, As of first importance, I gave this to you. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It is of primary importance. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us he won the battle over sin and death and the enemy, and we fix our eyes on him in the midst of this life that continually tries to obscure those facts. See? That's why we have to fix our eyes on him. And the God, of, the Father approved all Jesus did and said to him, according to Hebrews 1, 13, sit at my right hand and I'll make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. Romans 4.25 tells us the bodily resurrection proves that Jesus accomplished our salvation on the cross. Here, here's, it says, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And we're, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15 that if he doesn't rise, as we just read a minute ago, we're not justified. If Jesus doesn't rise, then he didn't conquer sin, it conquered him. And if Jesus didn't rise, then there's no hope for anybody anywhere. But that isn't the case, see. He was raised, and in being raised, accomplished the justification of all who believe. But we seem to leave that out as we present the gospel, don't we? Because we're afraid people are like, what? Raised from the dead? Come on. But Paul says it's of primary importance. And no way, will, there's, there's no vehicle to carry the Holy Spirit's work into the life of the believer unless the gospel is delivered, see. He didn't undergo decay because he was without sin. Sin had no hold on him. He stripped sin of its power. He stripped the enemy of his power. And he fulfilled everything God had promised in the past by his resurrection. That as the result of Jesus' resurrection. Okay? The believer is born again into a living hope. The believer has an imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved with their name on it, inheritance in heaven that never fades away. See? As a result of the resurrection. That's why Paul takes a whole chapter and he talks about how important it is. It's the proof that Jesus was God in human flesh. Apart from Jesus' resurrection, there is no living hope. Apart from Jesus' resurrection, our inheritance is what we deserve. A defiled inheritance reserved for us in hell. See? So that message, beloved, is the vehicle through which God brings salvation. That's the whole point. That's why Paul says it was imperative that I gave this to you of first importance. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So here's how it connects, see. Confess with your heart Jesus is Lord. So when you do this, you're really doing more than just believing in an isolated historical event. When you believe this from the truest part of you, the deepest part of you, you're really embracing as the most important dynamic of reality is the resurrection, which confirms that Jesus is the Son of God, see. That Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior. The resurrection confirms that Jesus was the sinful, sinless one, see. The resurrection confirms that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb that all other sacrifices point to. The resurrection confirms that Jesus is the conqueror of death. 
The resurrection confirms that Jesus is the soon-coming king. The resurrection confirms what you've confessed in your heart, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. The resurrection just confirms what you've confessed, that man can be justified. The resurrection confirms that Jesus has fulfilled all the promises of God to men, see? The resurrection confirms that man must repent. It confirms that Jesus has the right to judge, and he will judge. The resurrection confirms that we can be born into a living hope. And the resurrection confirms that because Jesus lives, all who believe will live also. And on and on, see? So you're confessing in your heart Jesus is Lord. And the substance and, and verification of the fact that he's Lord is believing that God has raised him from the dead, see? And so Paul says that it was of primary importance that I gave that to you. And it was that that created that dynamic in the Corinthian church. Out of a pagan community, starting in the synagogue with the with the conversion of the leader of the synagogue and then moving into his house, right there, giving out the gospel, that gospel, the true gospel, started that whole thing, see? And so Paul's calling them back to that. You are saved, but you've forgotten what the gospel looks like and you can't give it out. Here's what it looks like. And here's what it has to say, see? And here's what has to be believed for someone to be born again. So believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Your heart avows all that the resurrection is intended to avow. You believe in your heart the verification of all Jesus came to be and to do. Salvation comes through the vehicle of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit goes to work so that a person, beloved, can believe from their innermost being that God has raised Jesus from the dead, which verifies everything that Jesus said about himself. And a person must confess, see, that Jesus has all authority over their life. And they willingly submit to that authority. That is the gospel, and that is true salvation. See? And people will say, well, I, I'm saved, and I didn't, I didn't confess Jesus as Lord, and I didn't even understand all of that. Well, I would say to you now, have you done that now? And is that true about you? Do you believe that? Okay, because no one who's truly saved has skipped over those parts, you see? You may have heard a false gospel, but read your Bible and came to faith anyway, but you will embrace those things because Paul says, it's of primary importance that I gave these simple things to you because they are the gospel. They're the things that, that what you, you didn't reject it, you were established by it and saved by it, those things. And Paul just makes it very clear in Romans 10. He says, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You really boiled it down to just a few words would have just this enormous reach. See? And we're getting ready to do an outreach next week. And you're going to talk to, we will collectively talk to thousands of people on a parade route. Guess what? The power of the gospel is found in these things. And not necessarily in your creative story about your conversion. Now, your testimony is important because it gives really shoe leather to the change the gospel brings about. But it has to include these things. And people have to be able to do this when you're done. If they're going to come to faith, they have to be able to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. That's the good news. That we have victory over sin. That there's a home in heaven waiting for you. And it's guaranteed inheritance because of what Christ has done. You see? That's the essence of it. The Holy Spirit goes to work in a person so that they can believe from their innermost being that God has raised Jesus from the dead, 
which verifies everything Jesus said about himself. And a person has to confess that Jesus has all authority over their life and willingly submit to that authority if they want to come to faith, okay? If they want to be saved, they have to be able to do that. And the Holy Spirit gives them the power to do that. He calls them from the grave. They're dead in their sin. He enables them to do that. But the fact of the matter is that that has to be the case. Salvation can come to those who hear the word about Christ and believe and confess. Salvation can come to those who hear the word about Christ and call on his name. Knowledge comes before faith or believing or confessing. Knowledge comes before calling on the name of the Lord. And granted, the Holy Spirit empowers all of that and gives us the ability in our, in our deadness and of our sin to understand those things, but it still occurs, see? So just by way of application, as we think about even next week or perhaps today as you go out, it's a consistent theme for Paul in our introduction. Obviously, then, Our job in evangelism is the same as Paul's was back in Corinth and over in Rome. And it's to present the message, not manipulate people, okay? Not come up with your own message like the Corinthians were obviously doing. Not forget what the important parts of the message were. Or forgetting how important the, God, the simple gospel message was. Just present the message so that people have the appropriate hearing, see? And on that hearing, according to the first part of the verse, faith can act. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So any evangelism outreach, any outreach into any group of people, no matter where they are, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And when you're done with giving the word of Christ, they have to be able to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. And there's no shortcut to any of that. And we can't manipulate people into trying to convince them that this is the right thing. So on that hearing, see, according to the first part of the verse, faith connect. And it doesn't matter who you're giving the gospel to because Romans 10, 12 through 13 says, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, see? So regardless of what the audience may be, it doesn't really matter. There's no distinction there. It's the same gospel presented exactly the same way. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. A worldwide invitation. And verse 17 just confirms to us what Paul is telling the church in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, which tells us knowledge of the message of Christ comes from the word, and that knowledge must be there in order for them to respond in faith. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And Matthew 24, 14, speaking about the close of time as we know it, at the close of the tribulation period, preparing to enter into the millennial reign of Christ, this gospel we see, Jesus said, of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. What gospel? Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. What gospel? Well, I delivered to you, first of all, what was most important, which was that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel, see? Good news. So it's certainly a future reality for everybody. In this interesting passage in Colossians 1, 3 through 6, as we close, we give thanks to God, our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which, 
which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard what? What did they previously hear? How did they come to this place? The word of truth, the gospel. It's interesting, isn't it? It isn't that Paul's actually making that an emphasis. It's kind of like he just, that's the established fact, okay? I'm, gonna give, I'm giving thanks to God the Father for, for what you're doing, see? Because you, you have faith in Christ Jesus and you have love for all the saints. Obviously, fruit of a new life in Christ, see? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So all that is motivated by the fact that you're living for another kingdom, see? People who don't live for another kingdom aren't living very well in this one. You're thinking about the one that really matters, right? And because you're thinking about the one that really matters, uh, you're doing all these kinds of things. But it all was the result of what? You, you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel, which we just saw what it was, which has come to you just as in all the world also it's constantly bearing fruit, increasing. What's bearing fruit? The simple gospel. Not the message of men, not an edgy video, whatever, okay? Not just your testimony. It has to include the gospel, it's bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. See, that's the power of the gospel. See, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. It's constantly bearing fruit as of primary importance, Paul said. We are to deliver it clearly. It's available to all the world. And that full message is being delivered by faithful missionaries all over the place, across the street, in your neighborhoods, and across the water in foreign countries. And the missions, outreaches that are bearing fruit are the ones that are giving out the gospel, okay? Not watering it down, not afraid to give it, whatever, okay? Doing good deeds is great, and you want to have a social event, that's fantastic. But it's going to have to include the gospel if you want it to bear fruit. It's not going to bear fruit if it's not giving out the gospel. And the gospel is very clear here, okay? When you're done, people have to be able to confess Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Holy Spirit creates that confession, that vehicle of the gospel carries that opportunity to them. But the fact of the matter is that the, the presentation has to include enough information about the gospel for them to make that decision, see? No matter where it's giving, given, it can be understood, and its impact cannot be overstated. So we have the resurrection reality. That's what we just started on. Then we have the resurrection hope, resurrection authority, resurrection motivation, resurrection transformation, and resurrection triumph for all of us. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, this has been the experience of the Corinthians. They had the fruit of the gospel. He's called them saints. And then with one exception, of course, as the last part of the verse says, we just looked at it, by which you were also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And next week, we're going to talk about how that's possible. How is it possible to believe in vain? We'll talk about the human uh, portion of it. We'll talk about a false gospel that's given out and how it's possible to make a decision not based on the gospel, but on, based on your own human emotions or just rejecting it outright. So we'll talk about all of that next week and some passages that kind of shore up our understanding of what Paul's talking about. And, you know, this is a qualifying statement, and we're going to start with this next time. Here's the thing. If people profess, listen, People profess the gospel, but haven't given due consideration to what that implies and what it demands. They don't really trust Christ. And that's really what it comes down to. And that's Paul's, that's Paul's emphasis here, okay? By which you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless, what? You believed in vain. So you can, you can profess to believe the gospel, but if you haven't figured out that you have to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, listen, 
and all that that demands, you don't really trust Christ. So there's a shallow, non-saving faith. We're going to start with that next time and talk about what that means and how it can come about. And then we'll move on to the next couple passages that Paul's given to us. All right, that we have to close for today. We're out of time. Sorry, we're a little over. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer. A couple of quick announcements and we'll be done. Lord, we thank you today for our time in the word. We thank you for the joy it is to hear again the simple message of the gospel by which we were born again. We, even if we had heard really an a, a incomplete gospel or we heard a false gospel and we responded and we're bearing fruit, we've come to this place. We've understood these things to be true. And that's when salvation occurs. And so we were grateful for uh, your work in our life through the Holy Spirit. We thank you for bringing us alive from the dead, uh, for calling us, uh, for allowing our eyes to see the blessed message. We thank you for its call back to us again that we'll be able to apply this next week to clearly make sure we, to make sure we clearly express the true gospel message as we give our testimony. And Lord, I pray that you'll go to work in the hearts of people. Prepare them even now in this Christmas season. Many are hurting, many are, are struggling, looking for some meaning, for truth. Many have been deceived by uh, much false teaching. Lord, I pray that you just give us the ones that you've picked out in advance for us to talk to and give us uh, clarity as we speak. Open our mouth, open your word, open their hearts. We may be able to give out the gospel this next week to your, for your own honor and glory that you may uh, see the gospel preached to all nations everywhere, starting with our own. We give you praise and honor and glory. In Christ's name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen.